Morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 13? And uh, let's do something we haven't done for a while. Let, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're just going to read one chapter, so don't worry about having to stand for too long. But let's stand together and read Mark chapter 13. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? And Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to all to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but those who stand firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house or take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place during winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short these days, no one would, be, would survive, but for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything in advance. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that the summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about, that day or, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with an assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Grab a seat. Can uh, anyone tell me who, uh, who sang that? Does anyone know? R.E.M. Thank you very much. 
R.E.M. back in 1991, or at least they re-released it back in 1991. But that is a lyric the disciples could have sang as they listened to what Jesus was telling them as they sat together on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem and overlooking the temple. That R.E.M. song goes on, it's the end of the world as we know it and I feel fine, but that is probably not how the disciples felt in light of what they were hearing. Let me explain what we're going to do this morning in the last sort of half hour, 35 minutes. The sermon this morning comes in two parts. Since the 1st of March, we have covered 57 incidents in the Gospel of Mark. We are now nearing the end. That is of this series, not of the world. Uh, What we've been doing is we've been revisiting each and every incident. Now not, and please hear this, particularly please hear this this morning. We're doing this not in an attempt to cover or to raise every issue, but simply in the hope of knowing that every contact we have with Jesus will leave a trace of Jesus on us, in us, and with us. So in part one of this sermon, we're going to look at a chapter that has excited lots of people, intrigued lots of people, confused lots of people, and unsettled lots of people. And then in part two, we're going to look at two subjects. We're going to look at the subject of extravagant worship, And then this, the Lord's Supper. So part one. Now Mark 9.13 is a chapter about the end of the world as the disciples knew it. Everything was going to be radically different. And Jesus begins to unpack the events and the implications as he sits with his friends. A group of his friends on that Judean hillside. Here's the question. Is this a chapter about the end of the world. That's certainly how lots of people read it. That's certainly how lots of people now immediately read it or maybe want to read it. But it's not mainly, please hear me in this, it is not mainly or primarily about that. Let's look at this together. Verse 1. The disciples were, were understandably impressed by the sheer scale and the magnificence of the temple and all its associated buildings. They had, after all, taken years to build. And in fact, at this stage, they still weren't fully completed. And therefore, you can only imagine the intake of breath and the sense of shock at discovering that the whole lot was about to come crashing down. Here's what Jesus said to them. Not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And understandably, as you look at that, they want to know, well, when is this going to materialize? And what will be some of the key signs indicating that this is about to happen? Clearly something very significant was going to take place. The temple is going to be decimated, according to Jesus. And in the run-up to that event, Jesus wants his followers to know that they are going to be put under extreme pressure. They are going to taste and experience something of what he is about to taste And the experience. They're going to be dragged before governors. They're going to be handed over to councils. They're going to be flogged. It's all in verse 9. But in the meantime, if you hear news about a war starting up somewhere, or you get word of an earthquake in another part of the world, they shouldn't assume that Jerusalem is about to fall. Because, and I'm quoting Jesus in verse 8, these are the beginnings of birth pains. Seems to be a bit of a key theme running through this morning's service. 
These are the beginning of birth pains. And this way of speaking, which was very vivid, it was very powerful imagery that Jesus was using. And he was using it because it was images that were familiar to the Jewish mindset, right from the time of the great prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah onwards. There was talk of the world going through labor pains that would lead to the birth of a new day, the birth of a new age. And Jesus absolutely believed absolutely believed that his kingdom mission, that his core and his central message was the divinely appointed means of bringing this new day and this new age to birth. But for now and for the foreseeable future, there was going to be mess and there was going to be pain. And that includes false teachers doing the rounds. That includes frightening rumors and natural disasters. But rather than panic, What Jesus wants his disciples to realize is these are the beginnings of birth pains. Verse 8 is critical. The world as they knew it was going to be plunged into convulsions. And the disciples were going to be caught up in those convulsions. They were going to get arrested according to verse 11. But, and this must have come as a real comfort to them, they weren't to worry about what to say. Because they would be given words by the Holy Spirit. Although pre-Pentecost, I'm not entirely sure how the disciples actually processed that thought. But then, and this must not have come as any comfort whatsoever. It says, all men, this is verse 13, are going to hate you. They're going to loathe you because of me. And as we know from the records in history, it wasn't that long after this. Until Christians, for example, were tossed to the lions in front of sell-out crowds by the likes of Nero and Domitian. The level of hate was going to be intense and Jesus absolutely knew it. And so he needed to speak into the lives of these disciples, these friends of his. But in verse 14 you'll notice that the advice changes. That the descriptions become a little more graphic and actually they become quite cryptic. Because it moves from stand firm, guys, which is what Jesus said to them in verse 13, to get yourselves out of there. Look at verse 14. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. But notice the comment that's located in the middle of verse 14. Let the reader understand. Because Jesus knew that not all readers would understand. So why is Jesus urging his followers to get out and run? Why is he talking, what is he talking about and what will be the sign? Well, with hindsight, again, we know that probably what he is referring to is the terrible siege of Jerusalem that took place between AD 68 and 70. Historians like Josephus and many others record the events for us. It was extreme. It was violent. It was bloody. And Jesus wanted his followers to grasp that and to run So if you're upstairs, don't go downstairs and grab your stuff. If you're out working, don't even think about heading back home. It'll be extreme for pregnant women and new mums. It's all there in verse 15 following. But what about the sign? What about the sign? Well, Jesus refers to something that they will see. They will actually see this. Look at verse 14. When you see, and then we read a very strange phrase. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong. Now what is that about? It's an obscure phrase. Well it's actually a reference to Daniel 11 and 12 
which speaks of pagan armies invading Jerusalem, stopping the regular sacrifices in the temple, and setting up a desolating abomination instead. What exactly that was, not entirely clear here. It may have been an idol to another god in place of the true god. But the point is this, when you see it, and when you see these associated things, get out of there. And in verses 21 and 22, there's also references to more deceivers, more false Christs, more false prophets. And again, if you read the history books, the likes of Josephus, you discover records of many would-be messiahs, would-be prophets who were doing the rounds at this period in history. And the climax of all of this, as we know, was the actual destruction of the temple itself. And in the year AD 69, there was one Roman emperor succeeded another. There were four in all, and that included Nero. But as Vespasian made his way to Jerusalem to receive the crown, his adopted son Titus entered Jerusalem in AD 70, burnt the temple, destroyed the city, crucified literally thousands upon thousands of Jews. And it's no wonder that Jesus wanted his followers to run. And incidentally, although there's nothing incidental about it, the fall of the temple would have confirmed that Jesus was a genuine prophet. Because you remember what Jesus said in verse 2 of Mark 13, every stone's going to come down. And so at the moment, whenever the stones were falling, where there wasn't one left standing another, people would have then realized that Jesus, he was right. But how did Jesus describe such horrible and dreadful events? Well, it seems via prophetic language. And again, please hear me. I'm skimming. I know that. That's the nature of this series as we go through this. This is not an entire sermon on the end of the world. Please hear me on that. But look at how Jesus speaks about these horrible events via prophetic language. Language that was originally used by Isaiah to describe the fall of Babylon and Edom. The language, you'll find it in Isaiah 13 and 34. Language of a dark sun quenched moon, stars falling from the skies. And Jesus quotes it here in verses 24 and 25. So this is not primarily, hear me in this, a prediction of the end of the world because what would have been the point of running? But it's a prediction about the end of their world as they knew it. A new day was coming. A new day was dawning. And Jesus then injects another Old Testament text from Daniel, this time Daniel 7.13, about the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. Now, in Daniel 7, it's not about the return of the Son of Man, the second coming, but it is about his coming to God after suffering. It's all about Israel's representative Jesus sitting down, as David's Lord does in Psalm 110, at the right hand of the Father, having completed his program and his mission on earth. And if you see then, Jesus returns to a lesson from a fig tree. And if you were here last week, we looked at a fruitless fig tree in chapter 11. But here in verse 28, Jesus talks about fig trees with tender twigs, where leaves were beginning to appear. And Jesus says, when you see that, you will know that those are signs, those are signals that summer is near. And what Jesus was doing now was he was using this as an illustration to urge his hearers and his followers to watch out for all these crucial events that he has just described, to let them know that they are signs, they are signals, that not summer is near, but that the end of the world as they knew it was near. Again, if you were here last week, you'll remember the parable that Jesus told in chapter 12 about the vineyard. 
and about the owner of the vineyard giving the vineyard away to others. That was in verse 9 of chapter 12. Well, the others, as far as some see this chapter is concerned, points to those pagan and foreign armies that are going to trample the holy places. And when that happens, the disciples need to know the end of the world as you know it is not far away. And Jesus actually says in verse 30, and it's a a, a verse that has troubled people, this generation will not pass away until these things have happened. And that is only logical. Because he is the last in the line of the prophets. He is the son of the vineyard owner. There's nobody else coming after him. So this generation, his generation, will see this. And approximately 37 years later, they do see this. But Jesus actually makes it clear that he didn't know the precise day. He didn't know the precise hour when this was all going to kick off. But his father did. And as with all future events, including the ultimate end of the world as we know it, the timing is an issue that should always be left with God. But in the meantime, what does Jesus urge these followers to do? He says, keep watch, be alert, be on your guard, don't settle down. Huge events are imminent. As we just close this first part of this sermon, what is in this for us? Well, it is important. I believe it's important. And please do. I know some of you will want to challenge me after in this, and that's absolutely fine. But what is important is to absorb the significance of that moment in history when this great transition took place around AD 70, but also to realize that we need to watch. We need to be on our guard because according to Scripture, as we know, huge events are still imminent. The judgment that fell on the temple is a foretaste of the judgment that will fall on the whole world. But for now, don't try to work out time frames. Instead, stay focused. Remain faithful. Avoid compromise in this present age and look forward to the next age that is to come after the end of this world as everyone here knows it. The birth pains, they continue. But a new arrival is on its way. Glenn. In a moment or two, we're going to come um, to share communion together, which really is the ultimate symbol of God's grace and faithfulness to us. So we're going to sing, um, Lord, I come before your throne of grace. Please take your seats. As we, uh, as we enter chapter 14 of Mark's Gospel, everything changes. We find that, well, not everything changes at one level, because we find that the religious leaders, I'm not going to read these verses, but if you do have a copy of God's Word, it would be really helpful as we scan down them together. But we find that the religious leaders are looking, and it says in verse 1, for a sly way, a sly way to arrest and kill Jesus And then a little later, if you look down to verse 10, we discover Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, going off to strike a bargain with the chief priests to betray Jesus. But wedged between the hatred of an enemy and the treachery of a friend is a beautiful story. A beautiful, beautiful story that displays the extravagance of love and worship. Alistair McLaren, writing about this, says, We might almost suppose that Mark had an artist's eye for the power of contrast to heighten effects when he framed this sweetest story of lavish love 
in the black surroundings of the preceding and the following paragraphs. Talk is cheap, or so they say, and words do sometimes come easy. But in Simon's house in Bethany, an unnamed woman, or at least an unnamed woman according to Mark, expresses her love for Jesus in a practical and a sacrificial outburst of love. Because what she does is she breaks open a jar of incredibly expensive perfume and she pours its contents on the head of Jesus. This was surely an act of extravagant worship. But rather than see the beauty of her actions, some of the others who were in Simon's house were horrified by her behaviour. And this was a woman who decided to worship Jesus without inhibition. Others felt uncomfortable at her emotional expression of worship. They were even embarrassed, and so they began to pass comments. They even spiritualized their reaction by claiming a moral high ground regarding giving to the poor. But Jesus saw through it. Jesus was having none of it. And Jesus said, leave her alone. You know, how people express their worship is always an interesting issue. Some of us like to keep a lid on our emotions. The outward expression is kept to a minimum. Whereas for others, they're far more willing to wear their emotions on their sleeve, so to speak, even in worship. Some of us like it formal. We want it structured. Others are maybe here and you'd prefer it to be a lot less formal and a lot more spontaneous. It's all well-known. It's all well-worn territory when it comes to the subject of worship, particularly expressed worship in a church. We've talked about this before. But the issue, as always, is never style. What really matters is the attitude of the worshipper. You know, Jesus could see this woman's heart. And what she did was slightly shocking. Far too exuberant. It was all about wearing your emotions in your sleeve. Not into that. At least so many of the rest of the people in that house weren't into. But Jesus could see her heart. And what does Jesus say? This woman has done a beautiful thing. And I suppose that's the key factor for me. Because I really don't care how anybody worships. Let me be honest about that. I really don't. The issue is, as Jesus observes our hearts, does he see a beautiful thing? And only Jesus can see that. Let's never stand in a place of judgment how others worship. Let's allow God to see hearts and let him decide whether to express that was beautiful or not. And in verse 8, Jesus also makes the comment that she did what she could. Do you know what cost this woman to worship like this? There was real sacrifice involved, but it was what she could do. And it was what, maybe more importantly, it was what she was prepared to do to demonstrate her love for Jesus. And the question for us this morning is this, what am I prepared to do? What costly, what sacrificial act of worship can I do this morning to express my love for Jesus? Or am I too concerned with what everybody else might think? I love the final comment in this incident, verse 9. Jesus says, and this is just brilliant, I tell you the truth, 
wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. You see, this extravagant display of love for Jesus needs to be shared alongside the good news of the extravagant love of Jesus. Can I say that again? This extravagant display of love for Jesus needs to be shared alongside the good news of the extravagant love of Jesus. Let's move on. Do you know, the problem with doing this every week, as we do here in Windsor, is that familiarity can breed contempt. Which means that if you experience something a lot, which we do, that you can run the risk of losing respect for this. And that is a very real issue. But let me share another thought that I came across recently. Familiarity may not breed contempt as much as it breeds inattention. Do you know the next incident in Mark 14 and the next event in this service is the Lord's Supper? The disciples were directed to a prepared room where along with Jesus they would recall and they would celebrate freedom, the Passover. And we find ourselves here this morning, 14th of June, in this room before a prepared table in order to remember and rejoice in our freedom. But before Jesus took bread and wine, he had a really painful and distressing piece of news that he needed to share. One of his own, not some random outsider, one of his closest friends who was right now reclining at the table beside him was going to betray him. And as Jesus said that, it must have sent shockwaves through that prepared room. And it says in the text, that they were saddened, which surely was an understatement. And one by one, and that must have included Judas, they said, surely not I, surely not I. And Jesus then explained what exactly would reveal the identity of the betrayer. And then he shared the seriousness of his actions, because Jesus said it would be better, and this is, this is harsh, It would be better for him if he had not been born. How did Judas process those words? Chilling words. And then Jesus took bread. And he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he offered it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And in that moment Jesus actively explained what the next day really meant. Because in a matter of hours his body would be broken. His blood would be shed. Plus, via this simple meal, Jesus also provided a way, a tangible new way for his followers to remember. So that by eating bread and by drinking wine together, they could recall his death and his sacrifice. And this is what we are about to do right now. And the meaning is not so much in the words. The meaning is in the action. These actions... The taking, the blessing, 
thank you, Jesus. The breaking, the giving, and the eating. And it's in the taking, and it's in the blessing. Thank you, Jesus. And in the giving, and in the drinking of the wine. It's those actions, what we're about to do now, that is so powerful. Because actions in these next few moments speak far louder than any words. And therefore, I hope and pray that we as a church never lose respect for this. And may we never allow familiarity with what we're about to do breed inattention. And this meal has been given to the followers of Jesus. And therefore, we invite all disciples, all followers of Jesus to eat with us this morning and to drink with us. We invite all followers of Jesus to take this opportunity to remember, to recall, to celebrate your freedom. To take this opportunity to worship from your heart. And what I would suggest is we'll eat the bread in silence and then we will sing our thanks during the drinking of wine. Let's eat and drink together in remembrance.